Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we are grateful to be here today. Grateful, first and foremost, that you woke us up again and gave us another day of life. Grateful that we have a church that we can come to on this Lord's Day and find brothers and sisters in Christ that we can fellowship with and we can worship the one true God with. God, this morning we're also thankful for your holy word. We know that your word is true. We know that your word is righteous altogether. We know that in your word we find the words of eternal life. So God, today we pray that you would use your holy word in each of our lives to produce great fruit. God, we pray as we consider the story of this healed demoniac, that God, you would stir each and every one of our hearts to worship Jesus, the one who was powerful enough to heal this man of his great infirmity. God, we pray that through our time in your word today, you'd stretch our faith, you'd grow us. And Lord, we pray that if there is anything in us that is not right, any sin that needs to be repented of, that you would lead us to confession, you'd lead us to repent or turn of our sin so that we might find healing and blessing 
and life. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. And we commit our time in your holy word to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please be seated. Have you ever completely written somebody off before? You know what I mean? Like there's a person in your life and you've just written them off. As far as you can tell, this person is beyond being helped. This person is so far gone. This person is a complete lost cause. You look at them and you say, man, this person will never change. There's no way, there's no hope for a person like this. And maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a cousin that you have. Uh, maybe it's a, a brother-in-law. Maybe it's a niece or it's a nephew. Maybe it's a former friend of yours. But again, you look at this person and you just say, man, there's just nothing that can be done for this person. And so you've written them off. Maybe as I'm even asking that question, you're feeling this sense that, you know what, I think that's how people have felt about me before. And maybe your experience has been that other people have written you off in your life. They've just given up on you. They look at you and think there's nothing else that can be done for you. Well, if so, friend, I want you to know that today's story is for you. Because the man here called Legion was a man who was far beyond being helped. The people of his community, the townspeople, had completely given up on him. He was, in their estimation, a lost cause. Now, sure, there was a time when they had tried to intervene. They would go and they would try to bind this man up to prevent him from hurting himself and hurting others. But those days are long gone. All of that proved to be very ineffective. It was no use. And so they had just left him alone. Way out in the cemetery that was located in the local hillside. He was out of sight and he was out of mind. And they reasoned to themselves, hey, we've tried everything in our power to help this man, but all to no avail. And so all that they could do at this point was sit and keep their, their distance and wait for this man to self-destruct. But of course, it's not what happened. Because Jesus intervened. And if nothing else, the story of the healing of the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 is for us a powerful reminder that with God, there is no such thing as too far gone. Period. With God, there is no such thing as being too far gone. And maybe, if nothing else, you just need to be reminded of that today. Now, for our purposes, I found that this story divides neatly into three different movements and We'll follow them along as we unpack the text together. The, the story begins, though, presenting for us what I've just labeled the demoniac's dilemma. This is verses 1 through 5. The demoniac's dilemma. What is his dilemma? What is his problem or the issues that he's facing? Let's reread the five verses and let's unpack this together. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We'll stop there. In last week's sermon, if you were here, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples had taken a nighttime voyage across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus said to them, we we need to go to the other side. Now we're learning why Jesus needed to go the other side. But he said to them, we need to go to the other side. And he loaded the disciples up in a boat and they went across the Sea of Galilee, but it wasn't smooth. There was a massive storm and they were actually in danger for their lives. And they cried out to Jesus who was asleep in the boat. And Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Today's text picks up with their arrival on the eastern side of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee. They get over there, and and this, you should know, is actually Gentile country, meaning this is not formally part of Israel. These are non-Jewish people that Jesus is now visiting among. So they're in Gentile territory, and Jesus steps off the boat and immediately... And there's Mark's favorite word that he uses. Immediately in verse 2, there met him a man with an unclean spirit. Now, we're going to learn further into the text that by unclean spirit, Mark the author here means there met him a man who was possessed by demons. He was demonically possessed. What else do we know about this man that Jesus encounters? Well, we know quite a lot from these verses, and it really helps paint a picture for us of how serious of a dilemma this man was facing. I've just pulled out seven things. We can call this the profile of the demoniac. If we profile this man and we try to unpack what is going on with him, there's seven things I want to draw your attention to. The first thing is this, the man was isolated. He was living in isolation. Now, he wasn't completely alone because Matthew's gospel tells us that there were actually two demoniacs who were living here who Jesus healed. So he wasn't completely isolated, but these two poor souls were living in total isolation from the rest of the community. And perhaps Mark is focusing solely and exclusively on this one demoniac because his case was the worst. This man was in a horrible condition, but he's isolated. He's cut off from the community. The second thing is this. I already said he's demon-possessed, but we've got to go further. This man is severely demon-possessed. Severely. In verse 9, when Jesus asks him, what is your name? He says this, legion, for we are many. Now, I've only encountered a couple of people in my ministry that I suspect were demon-possessed. One of the things that stood out in each of those instances was the bizarre ways that they would identify themselves. And think about what a bizarre identification this is. This one man runs up to Jesus 
And Jesus is interacting with one man and he says, who are you? What's your name? And the man says, bizarrely, legion. And then he goes into the plural, for we are many. It's a very bizarre response, but it's not untrue. In Luke's gospel, we read that many demons had entered him. That's terrifying. We know Mary Magdalene, one of the disciples of Jesus, she once was possessed by seven demons. Jesus delivered her. But Luke says many demons had entered this man. Now his name's important. His name's Legion. And a Roman legion in their army at this time was usually around 6,000 troops. Now, that does not mean for sure that this man had 6,000 demons that he was possessed by. But it is noteworthy that when Jesus sends the demons out of this man, they go and they energize how many pigs? 2,000. So we don't know the exact number, and maybe that's not that important, but the idea is that this man is not just possessed by a demon, which would be horrendous enough, but he is severely possessed by a demon. He has almost no control over himself anymore. It's a very dire situation. The third thing we learn is this man is naked. In verse 15, his healing is described by telling us now he's clothed. In Luke 8, 27, we actually read that for a long time he had worn no clothes. So this man's living out there. He's naked. He's severely demon-possessed. He's in isolation. But it gets worse. He's also unclean. Now, I don't mean that in the hygiene sense, like he hadn't had a shower, which was almost certainly true. Okay, he was unclean in that sense. But I mean that in the, the religious sense, the spiritual sense, that he was actually ceremonially unclean. The reason for that, among others, was that this man lived among the tombs. Now, if you go to the law in the Old Testament, here's what Numbers 19.16 tells us. Whoever in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword, or who died naturally, or touches a human bone, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. This man has not only touched a grave, he lives among them. He lives in the tombs. So he's perpetually unclean. And what that means for him is that he is unwelcome to worship the Lord with the people of God. And people would have just kept their distance so that they themselves do not become contaminated. Added to this, this man is out of his mind. We see that in verse 15. His healing is described by being now in his right mind. He's also out of control. No one can bind this man. He's a danger to others. And then finally, friends, the man is self-destructive. Verse 5 tells us that night and day he's cutting himself with stones. He's he's self-harming. And so truly for this man that Jesus meets on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, this is a life or death situation. And there is no one who can help him. He's a menace to society, and the community has understandably given up on him. But there is one who has not given up on him, Jesus. Jesus, the night before, made a decision. We are going to the other side of Galilee. 
And the reason Jesus made that decision is because he knew what was waiting for him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or I should say, who was waiting for him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus cared about this man, and Jesus was going to come and do what nobody else could do. And now we're ready for the presenting challenge of the whole story. It's found at the end of verse 4. Here's the challenge that gets set up in Mark chapter 5. It says, no one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to subdue him. And so the question for us as readers is, will Jesus be strong enough to subdue him? Now, Mark has already told us instances where Jesus delivered somebody from a demon. But this story is very unique. Because as we've already talked about, Jesus is not here combating one demon, but legion of demons. And not only that, we are, we are, we are shown here that this man was incapable of being healed or being helped by a mere mortal. And so again, there's a challenge here. Nobody, everybody's tried, but nobody can subdue this man. Well, will Jesus have the strength to subdue him? Let's see. This brings us to the second movement now. The demoniac's deliverance. Look at verse 6 with me. And when he saw Jesus from afar, the demoniac, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now had this man come running full speed at any other person, naked, screaming his head off, with cuts and lacerations bleeding everywhere, I I would suggest to you that that person would turn and run. I know I would. But not Jesus. Jesus just stands his ground. And this man comes full speed running at Jesus. And and again, we've kind of got this conflict set up. There's these demons in this man. And there's Jesus, the son of God. And what's going to happen as war is waged between the two? Well, here's what happens. There's literally no contest. This man runs at Jesus full speed and then he falls down at the feet of our Lord and he cries uncle. He taps out. He begins to beg Jesus to stop tormenting him. And and that's the demons inside of him begging Jesus to stop tormenting them. There's not even a fight. The idiom, what do you have to do with me, means something like this. Why are you interfering with me? Or again, why are you interfering with us? See, the demons know that Jesus threatens to disrupt what they're doing. And so they come to him and they say, why are you interfering with what we're doing here? In other words, please just leave us alone. They they know that Jesus is a threat. They know that Jesus can come and he can just upend everything they're trying to accomplish. And the reason they know that is because they recognize who Jesus actually is. 
They know that Jesus is the son of the most high God. Now, in the ancient world, people believed in many gods. They believed in local, regional deities. But the demons themselves are fully aware that Jesus is the son of the only true and living God. All of those so-called gods are not gods at all, and the demons are aware of that. But they know Jesus, he's the son of the one true and living God. Now, as readers, of course, we've known this from the start. The very first verse of Mark's gospel told us as much. He says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So we've always known that Jesus is the son of God. But you've got to remember that the characters in the story, they're not aware of that fully yet. They're still being led to this conclusion about Jesus. And so Jesus at this point in his earthly ministry is proving over and over and over again that yes, he is God's son who has come to save God's people. In fact, this story, the healing of the demoniac, represents the second in a series of four powerful miracles that demonstrate Jesus' messianic authority. Last week was the first one where Jesus proved that he has authority over nature, right? Now, Jesus is proving that he has authority over demons. And next week, we're going to find that Jesus has authority over chronic disease, and he has authority over death. And so Jesus is intentionally demonstrating to his followers and to the masses that he has unparalleled Authority. He has the authority of God's Messiah and God's Son. And he's proving that to the people. And Mark, as an author of the gospel, telling the story about Jesus, he strategically puts these four stories together because he wants you and me to also come to the conclusion that Jesus is God's Messiah and God's one and only Son. Now, it is clear from everything that we see in this text that Jesus is the one with authority in the situation. I don't know if you noticed this, but every single character in the story begs Jesus. Did you see that? Every single character begs Jesus for something. First, it's the demons themselves. They Beg Jesus twice. Look again at verse 10. And he, the demoniac, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So they begged Jesus twice. The demons say, Please don't send us away. Please let us enter in to the pigs. But then notice down in verse 17 that the townspeople begged Jesus to depart from their region. And then in verse 18, the healed demoniac begged him that he might be with him. Friends, all of this highlights the authority of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus reminds us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. All of it. He has all authority in heaven. He has all authority on earth to do whatever he pleases. Nobody, not even a whole host of demons can tell Jesus what to do. The best we can do is beg 
and implore him. And yet, amazingly, he delights in responding to the humble supplicant. As we come to Jesus and we implore him for the things that are near and dear to our heart, it is his joy to bless us. It is his joy to answer us in ways that will lead to our flourishing. It's amazing. So here are the demons. They're trembling in the presence of Jesus. And they beg him not to send them away. Here in Mark's gospel, it's don't send us out of the country. But in Luke's gospel, it's don't send us into the abyss. Which is a word that actually refers to the place of final judgment. So what are the demons saying? They're saying to Jesus, please, don't send us out of the country and into the abyss. Don't consign us now to the place that we know we ultimately have to go. And so even here in this story, we're actually being introduced with the doctrine of the final judgment. The demons are aware there's coming a moment in time where they are going to be, again, consigned into the abyss. They're going to experience eternal judgment. In Matthew 25, 41, we read this. Then he will say to those on his left, this is during the judgment, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so in part, this idea should encourage us that these demons are ultimately going to wind up in the abyss. And what I mean by that is it should encourage us that Satan and his legions will pay for what they've done. And their reign of terror will come to an end at some point. But this verse in Matthew 25 also warns us. Because notice that Jesus is saying there that there are actually people who will join the demons and Satan in judgment. And so this is a warning. Who are these people? The answer is everyone who does not place their faith and their trust in Jesus And experience his forgiveness for their sins. And so these demons here are looking at Jesus and and they're not confused about their future destiny. They know that God's a just God and that there will be judgment. And they know what's going to happen to them. And so they say, Jesus, please don't. Don't send us there early. Instead, let us enter the swine. And Jesus grants them permission. And so the man gets delivered, the pigs are now possessed, and they run and perish in the sea. Now sometimes, as modern people, and even as modern readers of the Bible, people will say things like this, they'll say, the stuff that people used to call demon possession was just psychological issues. We just didn't know anything about mental health 2,000 years ago, so kind of everything just got labeled demonic possession back then. And while it's probably the case that many mental health conditions were lumped in with demon possession in the ancient world, demon possession was and is real. We see evidence of that here. The entrance of these demons into the pigs that then led to the pigs suddenly having immediate, irrational, and destructive behavior confirmed that this man was not just dealing with psychological issues. This wasn't just a problem in his mind. There was a spiritual component to this. And he was demon-possessed. And again, now these demons make their way into the pigs and disrupt them as well. The scriptures are very clear. 
Angels and demons are real. And demons can have a profound impact in our world, in people's lives. And the only true protection that we have is the presence and the power of God in our lives. Because friends, listen to me, without God's protective presence, we are vulnerable to demonic influence. In fact, the scriptures teach that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are under the sway of the wicked one. In Timothy, we read that we are actually, apart from Christ, we are taken captive by the devil to do his will. So the only protection a human has against being heavily influenced and even at some, in some ways controlled by the demonic is to be in right relationship with God and to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And trust me when I say you want that. Because in this story, we are given such a clear and vivid picture of the desire of the devil and demons for every one of God's precious creatures. What is their desire? It is to bring death and destruction to you. And Jesus told us this in John 10.10. He said, the thief, speaking of Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is saying he has no other agenda. He wants to rob you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. That's it. That's what he's after in your life. That's what he's after in your husband's life. That's what he's after in your children's life. That's what he's after in your friend's life. That's what he's after in your neighbor's lives. He has one mission. I want to destroy. I want to wreak havoc. But Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And when you look at the demoniac here, here is a man who had already experienced being robbed of so much in his life up to this point. They had stolen almost everything from this man. And these demons were well on their way to killing him and destroying him until Jesus showed up, interrupted their plans, and brought life in abundance to him. Because in verse 13, the unclean spirits come out of this man. And we find him down in verse 15, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. This man experienced complete and total deliverance in his life. The man who was once running around naked is now fully clothed. The man who couldn't, who couldn't sit still, he was finicky and he was cutting himself and he was walking around and screaming and shouting is now sitting there. And he's sitting there in his right mind. And so you could say this, that in an instant of time, Jesus has undone all of the destructive effects that Satan and his legions have had on this man. We don't know how long this man was possessed. It could have been years. It probably was. And all of these demons have brought so much destruction to this man. He's, he's a shell of a man. And it takes one moment and one encounter with Jesus Christ. And he undoes all of that. And this man is completely restored. His healing here provides for us a beautiful picture. One of the most beautiful pictures, honestly, in the Gospels of what conversion looks like when a person comes into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're getting a picture of what that looks like just from the healing here of the demoniac. Here's what I mean. 
Before Christ, we belonged to the kingdom of darkness. Here's what Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not only that, but before Christ, we were naked and ashamed, spiritually speaking. But here's what Isaiah the prophet says, Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Before Christ, we were bound to an old life and an old identity. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And finally, before Christ, we were in need of having our minds renewed. Our minds had become corrupt and futile. But in Romans 12, 2, we read that we are not to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so when we come to Christ, it's a complete and total deliverance. Every bit as much as what we see with this demoniac here in our story. This man has experienced total deliverance. And so now we have an answer to the question of verse 4. Again, the question there was, will Jesus have the strength to subdue this man? And the answer is, without question. So here's the takeaway of the healing of the demoniac in a single sentence, if I can give it to you that way. Here's our takeaway. All of the hosts of hell are no match for the man of heaven. All of the hosts of hell are no match for the man of heaven. I titled today's sermon, Stronger Than Our Strongest Demons. Stronger Than Our Strongest Demons. Of course, this man in the text was literally dealing with demons. He was possessed by them. And Jesus was stronger than them. And if a person today was even in that desperate state, actually possessed by a demon, there's hope for them in Jesus because Jesus is stronger than the demons. But as I hinted at a moment ago, apart from Christ, every person is under the destructive influence of Satan and the demons. Added to that, they're also under the destructive influence of their own flesh. And the destructive influence of our own flesh and of the demonic manifests itself in many ways in our lives. And so we often talk, not just Christians, but just people in our culture talk about dealing with our demons, right? And by that, what people mean is dealing with the awful things in our lives that seem to have power and control over us. Could be drugs, could be alcohol. Could be pornography or depression or uncontrollable anger or guilt or shame or a thousand other things that just have a hold on you and, and lead you into doing very unhealthy things and into very unhealthy and destructive places. And we need to be reminded as we see the power of Jesus on display in Mark chapter 5 that Jesus is stronger than anything. He's stronger than any of that and all of that. So that anything that seems to have power over us is powerless if we bring it to Jesus. 
And this is why nobody is truly beyond hope. Now you might say to me, well, Pastor Daniel, I've been a Christian for years and I'm still struggling with these things. That very well might be true. But that's not for lack of Christ power. Jesus is strong enough to deliver us and to the degree that each of us yield to the Spirit, to the degree that each of us abide in Christ, we're going to see us growing in sanctification, growing in holiness, and we're going to see these things that are like chains and bondage in our lives loosening and loosening and loosening until that day when we are resurrected in glory and those things have zero hold on us ever again. And so the good news is, again, all of these things that have a hold on us, all of these things in our lives that are destructive, are powerless in the presence of Jesus. And therefore, there is nobody that you know, and certainly not you yourself, that is beyond hope. The moment we or they run to Jesus and fall down at his feet, everything can change. It sure did for this man. And this brings us then in conclusion to the response to this man's deliverance. But I have to tell you, it's a divided response. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The first response to what Jesus has done here is fear and rejection. The herdsmen and the townspeople are afraid. We read that right there in the text. When they learn what Jesus has done, it tells us, in verse 15, that they were afraid. Now, commentators made this helpful connection. They said, listen, fear is the same response that the disciples had in the last chapter when they were sailing across the, the Sea of Galilee in the boat and there was a big storm. And so fear is just the normal response that anybody has to the awesome power of God. When you see God's power, it makes us afraid. So that's the normal response, but the only important question then becomes, what do we do with that fear? Will we fall down and worship Jesus and serve him for who he is? Or will we seek to escape from his presence? And that's what the townspeople and the herdsmen did. They were confronted with the awesome, incredible power of the Lord, and they were afraid of it, and they said, we just want you to leave. Leave us alone. Now, if you're like me, you're asking yourself, why? Why would that be the response? Wouldn't they be celebrating and saying, what else can Jesus do? Maybe we haven't seen anything yet. What else does he have to offer? Well, some have speculated that it's because Jesus cost them a lot of money. It does say when they heard about what Jesus did for the demoniac and the pigs, they were afraid. Now, I did a quick Google search. How much does an adult pig cost? I can't wait to see what targeted ads I get this week. <laughs> like Instagram's going to send me just pictures of like bacon dripping with grease. You want to buy a whole pig, Daniel. Well, it turns out an adult pig costs somewhere between $600 and 
Don't get your calculators out. I did it for you. 2,000 pigs then comes out to somewhere between 1.2 and $1.5 million. It's a lot of bacon. So this is a ton of money, right, to lose 2,000 pigs. I mean, the guy who, who owned all these pigs or the people that owned all these pigs, they were very wealthy. They were doing just fine. Things were going well. So there's a lot of money at stake here. But the truth is we don't know for sure why they wanted Jesus to leave. The only motive we're given, again, is the idea that they were afraid once they learned what Jesus did. And it seems like if it was about money, they'd be less afraid and just more angry with Jesus. But they were filled with fear. So the question is fear of what? One way we can think about this is like this. We could say, it's true that in the ancient world, as I already said, people believed in local deities and local gods. They certainly believed in demonic power and malevolent forces. And this town had learned how to live in a state of appeasement with the local gods and powers. How did they learn to live that way? They said, you know what? This demoniac or these guys, they're uncontrollable. So let's just banish them to the cemetery and the hills. They're away from us. We've got that sort of sorted out now. That's contained. And we've got everything else going well. The farmers are doing fine and the town is getting along okay now. They figured this out. But but then, in a matter of just a few minutes, this strange man gets off of a boat, and it seems as if he stirred the hornet's nest. He's driven the demons out of this man and into their pigs. They've lost 2,000 pigs, and probably the townspeople are sitting there afraid of what else Jesus might disrupt if he sticks around. And what other bad misfortune they might endure if this strange new man has his way in their region. Put another way, they want Jesus to leave because Jesus has disrupted the status quo. They want things to go back to the way they were. Jesus has now upended all of that. And in many ways, people today still reject Jesus along these same lines. You you know people like this, so do I. They've just sort of learned how to live in a state of appeasement with their own consciences. They just sort of sorted that out. I'm not that worried about judgment or any of that stuff. Like, yeah, I know I'm not a great guy. I know I've done some things I shouldn't do. But they just sort of soothe that and push that down. They've appeased their consciences. They've also learned to live in a state of appeasement with the powers that be. And, And people like that see Jesus, if they see the true Jesus, if somebody preaches the true Jesus to them, they see Jesus as a threat to all of that. Because he is. He's he's a genuine threat to all of that. Because the presence of Jesus in a person's life life will threaten their loves and their desires, their decision-making, their time and their finances, perhaps even their security and their safety. And so for many people, they say, I want nothing to do with that man. I'm not interested in that. I just want to maintain the status quo. And so they just want Jesus to go away. And what's so incredibly sad about that is that just like these townspeople 2,000 years ago, they're banishing the only one who has both the heart and the power to bring healing and restoration and life and wholeness and blessing to them. 
I mean, think about it. For this moment in human history, these Gentiles on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee had access to the Son of God. And he delivered this demoniac. And he likely would have done so much more for these people if they were interested. And they rejected him and they banished him. And that moment of opportunity was lost for them, presumably forever. It's tragic. That's response one, fear and rejection. Look at verse 18 and let's look at response two and we'll close. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the the Decapolis, which is 10 cities over here, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. How can we describe his response? Well, it was gratitude and loyalty. Whereas the townspeople are begging Jesus to leave, the healed demoniac is begging Jesus to let him stay. Jesus, just let me come with you. I want to be one of your disciples. I want to follow you. I want to be with you. He's now committed to Jesus. He's made up his mind. I'm belonging to that guy. Jesus, can I be with you? And of course, this is shocking to some of us, but Jesus says no to this man. He doesn't let him come with him. Instead, he tells the man, you need to go home and you need to tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. Isn't it intriguing that Jesus says yes to the requests of the demons? He says yes to the requests of the townspeople, the unbelieving townspeople. And then he says no to the request of his new disciple. And one of the things that that should tell us is that becoming a Christian does not mean that you've acquired a heavenly genie who now is just going to give you everything you want and everything you ask for in your life. Rather, becoming a Christian means that you've acquired a brand new master, a brand new boss, or to use biblical language, a brand new Lord who's going to direct your life in ways that he thinks are good and right for you. And so in the Christian life, actually, there are plenty of times where we want one thing and we think it's best and we think it's right. We say, God, do this for me. God, if you love me, do this for me. And God says no. And instead, he gives you a different mission and he gives you a different answer. And yet we can trust from Scripture that every one of God's no's in our life serve the purpose of a greater yes. God says no to you here only to say yes to something that will ultimately further his goals in the world and Produce blessing and flourishing in your life. And the trick is, just like for this demoniac, to when you're standing there on the Sea of Galilee and you get the big fat no to the thing you want with all your heart, it's to continue to trust and to obey and to go do the thing that Jesus tells you to do. Why did Jesus say no to him? Well, we're told Jesus wanted him to go and tell his family and his friends. And this is such a great reminder to us that when you come to Christ, you might be filled with zeal and that's awesome. And you might say, I want to reach the nations with the gospel and that's wonderful and maybe you can be a part of that. But your primary and your first mission field is to go back home and tell your family and tell your friends and tell your coworkers and your classmates 
the amazing things that the Lord has done for you. Put differently, your mission field, first and foremost, is your immediate sphere of influence. And so I would just challenge each of you this morning, does your family know that you belong to Jesus? Do your friends know that you belong to Jesus? Have you told them the great things that the Lord has done for you? And if your answer to that is no, well, now you've got homework this week, okay? Now you get to go home from church with an assignment. And the assignment is, Lord, open up opportunities for me to tell of your great works in my life to the people who know me best. And the reason why that's so powerful is because those people know you the best. Those people know who you have been. They know your sins. They know your shortcomings. They know your struggles. And when Jesus gets a hold of your life, they more than anybody are able to see the powerful testimony and the powerful work of God in you. And so God says to you, you want to be one of my disciples? Go tell those who know you best the things that the Lord has done for you. And there's power in our testimonies. Amen? Please pray with me. God, we are so grateful for another example here in your word of your amazing grace. Here's a man who had never heard of Jesus. Here's a man who had been completely rejected by everybody who could have helped him. Here was a man who was truly a hornet's nest of demonic activity. And yet, God, in your grace, you pursued this man. You loved him, you pursued him, and you delivered him. And God, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, we just can't help but marvel at your grace in our lives. We did nothing to deserve you coming to us and you rescuing us in Christ. And yet, your word tells us that God loved this world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, this week, would you stir our hearts as worshipers? Would you help us to renew our love for you as we've reflected on your love for us and your grace in our lives? And God, we as a church family, we want to pray for anybody here who does not know you, Jesus. They've never committed themselves to you and declared you to be Lord of their lives and submitted themselves to you. God, would you change that? Even here this morning, this demoniac had his whole life and his eternity changed in an instant, in an encounter with Christ. And we believe that can still happen today. So Lord, we pray nobody would leave here today without a personal encounter with Jesus and becoming a brand new creation in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.